Take your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20. We are at the beginning phase of a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. Now, I want to share with you before we get going this morning about one of the biggest challenges I have discovered in parenting. I have now been a parent for closing in on eight years. And in that eight years, I have discovered that one of the most difficult things to teach your children is how to share. It wasn't that difficult when we had one. It wasn't that difficult when we had two, and the second one was under two. It is almost impossible right now. Teaching them how to share. Now, here's the thing that I think is interesting. My understanding of what sharing means is completely different from my two boys' understanding of what sharing means. And as I got to thinking about this week and what I asked them to share and how I asked them to share, one of the things that I came to a realization of is this, that not all things in life are meant to be shared, right? There are certain things in life that should not be shared. For instance, a bite-sized piece of chocolate should not be shared, amen? Some of you may say a Snickers bar should not be shared or larger than a bite size, but it shouldn't be shared, right? Somebody has said this, a unicycle should not be shared, right? So this is what I want you to do. I want you to participate this morning. We're in a participating society. I want you, with the people around you, to gather together and take a couple of seconds, minute, and come up with a couple of things that should not be shared, all right? Things that are acceptable not to be shared. So turn around. Find somebody. Nobody's moving. Nobody's doing anything. You, all right? Find a couple of things. What are some things that should not be shared? All right? Have I got something that shouldn't be shared? All right. Anybody got a good one? Raise your hand. I want to hear it. All right? Over here, Jack. A, a handkerchief you just used. All right? That's a good one. There you go. All right? Chewing gum should not be shared. All right? A cough drop. All right, in the back, back there, a toothbrush, right? Everybody's worried about your mouth, right? You got the chewing gum, cough drops, you know, David. Germs. I wish that were true in my house, right? Your spouse should not be shared, right? That's good, yeah. All right? One more, maybe, right here. Medicine should not be shared, all right? So there are some things in life that should not be shared. The one that I actually was going to close with was a spouse. Because we understand that there's a show on TV coming on. I don't know if you've seen this or not. It was They were on the Today Show the other day, and it's called Sister Wives. It's a reality show following a man who now has four wives. All right? Now, we could get into a debate about why any man would want four wives. But the point is, the Scripture teaches, as we move along in Scripture, we find out there is an exclusivity to a relationship between a husband and a wife, right? That when you enter into a relationship... See, Jeff didn't know I was going to give a sermon on marriage this week, right? He thought we were doing Ten Commandments. When you enter into a relationship of marriage, you become exclusive. In fact, there are some things in life 
that only work when it is exclusive. Well, the reason we talked about that is because we find out in the first two commandments that God does not intend to share His glory or worship with anyone or anything. He says, for your life to be what it ought to be, it must be exclusive in its devotion to me. And so the first two commandments, we're going to cover two today, because they do relate, is all about, they are all about worshiping God and God alone. It is about returning to our first love. It is about focusing on the one who has purchased us with a price, and because of that, we are to give our full and undivided attention and devotion to Him and Him alone. That is what the first two commandments are about. Now, I know some of you, I got some emails this week, you felt convicted after the video last week and some things happened and so you've gone back and you've reviewed the Ten Commandments. Some of you already knew them, but we're going to read them just to make sure we've got them together, all right? Verse 3 and 4 says this, You shall not, or you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The first two of these are foundational for the rest of the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you get these first two wrong and the other eight right, then you've missed something. And you really cannot get the other eight correct unless you get the first two right. You see, what it is, it is a foundational step that God is making for His people. Now, let's remind ourselves, these people have just come out of bondage in Egypt. They've just been in a place where they've been told where to go, when to go, how to go, who to worship, how to worship, where they could worship. And they are freed from all of that. They make it to the Red Sea. I don't know if you saw this or not, but we've talked about this. They're debating where the Red Sea crossing was on CNN.com this week, front page. But whatever, it was the Red Sea. It's what the Bible says. And they crossed it, right? They crossed over, cross it. They get to the other side. They begin to establish a community, a nation, a people. And in the midst of that, God says, here, let me give you some instructions about what you need to do. And the first thing he wants them to understand from the very beginning is this is that what they are about to embark on is radically different than anything they have ever known. The world in which they lived was full of gods. The Egyptians had some of the most gods in the ancient world. And the truth is, many of the Israelites, while they were in Egypt, no doubt began to adopt some of the practices. The Egyptians had a God that controlled the Nile. The Egyptians had a God that controlled the weather. They had a God that controlled livestock. They had a God that controlled all these things. And so as 
part of what they did, they would make sacrifices to the God of the river to make the river all right. They make sacrifices to the God of the harvest to make the harvest okay. And so they had all of these gods built up. And what God comes to the people and says is, what you are about to embark on is absolutely different than anything that is around in this world today. Because he says, not only am I to be the best God you have, he says, I am to be the only God you have. Now, for us, that's not a radical statement. There's one God, absolutely. But for the people in this day who believed that gods were everywhere, that was a radical statement. Now, the picture here, he says this, you shall have no other gods before me. The picture here is twofold. One is, it is a picture literally of a relationship that was likened unto marriage. When it says, you shall have no other gods before me, the words that are used there in the negative would later be used to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife in the exclusivity that is there. And what he's saying is, there should be no other people involved in this relationship. It is a relationship between you and me. It comes first and is the only relationship that really matters. It's all about you and me. In fact, that little phrase at the end, you shall have no other gods before me, the, the, the literal translation of that is, you shall have no other gods in my face. Now I think, well, that's, what does that mean? It literally means that in their day and time, when you brought something to somebody's face or put it in front of their face, you were showing it off or displaying it or having it side by side. What he's saying is, there shouldn't be a thought of another god in your mind. It is me and me alone. You shall have no other gods. A radical statement to a group of people about the fact that no matter what else went from this day forward, their number one priority was to keep God as God in their lives. The rest of the Old Testament is really about the struggle for the people of Israel to do exactly that. Even somebody like Solomon was a guy who started off so well and yet by the end of his life had allowed so many other gods to invade his life that he was no longer living how God had called him to live. When you get to the New Testament, in fact, towards the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation tells us about a church. The church in Ephesus. A church in Ephesus who was doing all of the right things. They were keeping the doctrine pure. They were helping other people. And from what it seems, people would have looked at that church and said, Have you seen the church in Ephesus? Man, they're doing the right thing. And said, It says, I have this against you. You have what? Left your first love. Let me just tell you this. The most difficult commandment to keep is number one. To keep God as the only God in your life. As the only one that has your devotion and your attention in it. I was thinking about uh, how so many people in our world have started out on the right track and fallen off. We sang my tribute this morning. Anybody know who wrote my tribute, by the way? Andre Crouch, right? But people of my parents' generation... And my generation, I'm sometimes a little older than my generation. They may not remember this. But when you're a West Tennessee boy that grew up an hour and a half north of Memphis, you associate my tribute with 
Elvis, right? And that song he put, the American Trilogy. In fact, it's just tough for me. This morning when the song came up, it's tough for me not to have Elvis's voice and me try to imitate him a little bit. You don't want to hear me try to imitate him, but, you know, you hear that. And I think about his story. And I've watched a lot of, a lot about it. My parents were huge fans. And as a result, you know, sometimes as you grow older, you become more interested in the things your parents are interested in. And so I've become a fan and, and followed his story. And it really is a tragic story. Here was a man who had a real faith belief. And as you watch him get everything a person in the world could want, He slips farther and farther away from his Lord. I don't know if he had a salvation relationship with the Lord. I've looked, I've tried to, I don't know. What I know about this, by the end of his life, he was living away from the Lord's will. And yet you see him over and over again try to recapture a portion of that. There's stories about him in uh, Vegas when he was doing some Vegas shows that after the show at midnight he would get all of his uh, singers around Tom Jones tell I mean you know tells this story that he was invited to Elvis's room and all that Elvis wanted to do was to play gospel songs on the piano and Tom Jones now not considered the most uh, biblically relevant person all right says you could tell it was as if he was still searching for what mattered. And here's the point. You can get everything you want in life, and if you miss this commandment, you've missed it. And what I'm afraid of is this. I'm afraid that on a week-to-week basis at First Baptist Church in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, there are those of us that gather week after week and yet we're doing what we think we're supposed to do, and yet we've lost our first love. We haven't connected to God as God alone, and we have filled our lives with stuff that has taken our attention away from Him. You are not here to make a living. You are not here to draw a paycheck. You are not here to be in social clubs. You are not here to do any of those things. You are here to be in a passionate relationship with the Lord your God who created you and has redeemed you by the death of His Son on the cross. That is why you are here. And if you miss that, you miss it all. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's what that's really about. It's really about worshiping the right God. Worshiping the right God. And these two commandments work together. They, they, they intersect. And they're going to give us a, a one phrase that we're going to put together. But the point of this first part is that we are to worship the right God. We are to worship God and God alone. Now, here's the question. Well, how do I know if I'm worshiping the right God? Well, let me tell you two tests, all right? There are two tests to figure out whether or not you're worshiping the right God. First of all, the first test is this. What do you love? What do you spend time, money, energy, emotional investment? What makes you really happy? What makes you really sad? What makes you 
um, 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 fired up, mad? What makes you excited? What gets your juices flowing? What gets you going in the morning? What is it that you love? And is God a part of that equation? Is living out God's purpose for your life part of that equation? Is gathering together to worship God part of that equation? Is living your life in devotion to Him part of that equation? It's amazing the things in our lives that we give our time and money and energy to. It's amazing. Now, there are good things in our lives that if we ever elevate them to the place that they are above our relationship and desire and want and love for God, then they become things that we have to be clear of. What do you love? The first part of this, you shall have no other gods before me, I mentioned that is a, uh, it's a description really of a marital relationship or a love relationship. And what God is saying is this, I have put myself out on the line in my love for you. What he's basically saying to the Israelites at that point is this, listen, I have put my reputation, I have put my name, I have put my life, I have put myself out on the line because of my deep and abiding love for you. The question is this, will you put yourself, will you put your devotion, will you put your life on the line in return because of your love for me? Now when we get to the New Testament, what God basically says there is, listen, I have put myself in my son literally on the line. I have crucified him. He has been dead. He has been buried. He has been beaten. He has paid the price for your sin. I have laid my life, the best that I have, out on the line for you. The question is, will you now, in return, give it back unto me? What's your relationship like with the Lord? And if you immediately start thinking of all the things you're doing, that's not what I'm asking. What's your relationship like with the Lord? Is it a love relationship or is it an obligation relationship? Here's the second test. What do you love? And then the second test is who do you trust? Martin Luther once said that what your heart clings to and relies upon is your God. What do you trust? Going back to what kind of an extension of what we talked about last week, what God is saying here is, first of all, I've put myself out on the line. I've done everything I can do for you. I love you. Will you love me in return? Or that is my commandment to you to give me back love. The second thing that he says is not only have I put myself out for you, but I have already shown you that I am the only God worth trusting. So will you trust me? He did that in Egypt. Remember I mentioned all those gods? We've talked about this before uh, in here. But all those plagues that happened, those ten plagues, the frogs and the locusts and the Nile and all of that, and the first, those were all direct attacks on Egypt's ten mightiest gods. And what God was saying is, they think their God is powerful. Let me show you I am the one in control. And so he comes to them and he says, I am the one you are to love and I am the one you are to trust. Now let me ask you a question. When times get difficult, when problems happen, what or who do you trust? Do you trust that the Lord is sovereign and can take care of it and will lead you through? Or do you attempt in all your might to figure out a way to fix it? Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't give us human intuition and God doesn't give us human minds that we are to use. But where does your trust lie? Where do you put it? The first of these two commandments you shall have no other gods before me, 
is really about worshiping the right God. And here's the second thing. The second one adds to that, that we are to worship the right God in the right way. We are to worship the right God in the right way. Verse 4 says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. Now, let me just say this. That covers it all. All right? We shouldn't make anything that looks like anything in the sky, on the earth, or in the waters. That covers it. All right? You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the sins of the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. The point there is that we are to worship the right God in the right way. Now, there's some debate about, was he talking about idols for other gods, or is he talking about idols that would look like God? The answer to that is yes, both. But the point he wants the Israelites to understand is, you cannot represent me, so don't try. And if you can make it, it's not worth worshiping. And Isaiah, he will say this to them, why in the world would you go chop down a tree have a master craftsman make it into the shape of something and then go bow down to what you've created. It's just ridiculous. He said, why would you not worship something that cannot be shown in a physical form, that cannot be made? And the point he gives for us is this. It goes back to the first one in some ways. Do not put your trust or your worship in things or traditions or man-made concepts. Trust only in me. Now, worship here is not just about what we're doing right now. Worship here is about a lifestyle that was involved. Worship the right God in the right way. You see, there are a lot of people in our world today that are attempting to worship in ways that are vain, that in ways that are wrong. I shared this with you three years ago, almost to the day, and I know you've all got it and you know it, so... If you've, you've memorized it, you don't have to worry about it. But I've got six ways that worship can be the wrong way. All right? And the first one is this. When you attempt to live for the Lord or to serve Him with unconfessed sin in your life. Now, these aren't going to be on the screen. You'll just have to listen and write. When there is unconfessed sin in your life, Scripture teaches us that we all have been made clean, but that we will all continue to sin. The problem is when it becomes habitual without confessing it to the Lord or to one another, it is difficult, impossible to worship the Lord and spirit and truth, to live for Him completely when you've got sin weighing you down. When conflict is present in your life is the second one. When you are in conflict with someone particularly a fellow believer, you cannot come to worship the Lord. You cannot live your life devoted to Him. When human traditions replace biblical mandates, we just are reading in the book of Isaiah in our one-year Bible study, and what we're finding is that God says to the people in Isaiah, I do not like what you're doing. You're doing it all right. The problem is you're doing it with the wrong heart. What He would say to us is, you can sing every right song, and preach the right sermon. You can have the right offerings. But if you're not doing it with a heart devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is wrong. And what I ask for us as a congregation is, have we found ourselves in the loop of doing all the right stuff, 
without giving our heart and our soul and our mind unto the Lord our God. And as a result, we're doing the right things in the wrong ways. Vain worship is when there's emotion without substance. When we have emotional response, but there's no truth or substance or reality behind it, it's vain. At the same time, vain worship is when there's substance without emotion. What other area in our lives do we expect to be passionately devoted to, and yet we have no emotion about it? I watched a little football yesterday. And there was a little game over in Arkansas that it's kind of nice to watch without any rooting interest. And at the end of that game, Arkansas lost to Alabama. And you know, had them, should have, probably should have won the game. And after it was over, they just showed a single shot of a girl that had her face half-painted white and half-painted red. I thought it was funny. They had a red out at Arkansas. I don't know if you knew that. Because Alabama's not used to playing with red all around them, I guess. They had a red out. And so they, she painted her face half white, half red, and was wearing red the whole rest of the way. And as they went to her, she had crocodile tears streaming down her face. I'm not talking about whimpering. I'm talking about crocodile tears. Because a 21-year-old guy had thrown the ball to a person in the wrong colored jersey. When was the last time your distance from God caused you to weep? When was the last time that God moving in your life caused you to celebrate with reckless abandon? We expect in every other area of our lives that we are emotionally invested to have emotion flow out of it. Why do we think it's okay to be dry as everything in our worship and our devotion to the Lord? The last way that worshiping the God in the wrong way is this, is when we have our Sunday morning activity unattached from the rest of our lives. When it doesn't make a difference in what happens on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon, that we give God the two hours this morning and our attendance is to be checked off in heaven somewhere and He says, I've done my duty for the week. Now let me go do whatever. And I'm not even talking about bad stuff. I'm just talking about living life without an understanding of who He is. You see, most of us do not realize that when He comes to the Israelites and says, because of my relationship and my rescuing of you from the Egyptians, what you are about to do is completely different than anybody else around you. What we don't realize is this, that when God comes to us and says, because of what I have done for you and purchasing you and rescuing you and delivering you from the sin of eternity and hell and all that is involved in that, because of that, you are going to live a life that is completely different than anybody else around you. Do you realize that all of the latest studies show that believers, people who say they are born again, believers in Jesus Christ, live, work, play, and act just like everybody else in our society in America. We are no different. And if there's one thing that I know for sure is that the Bible teaches that when Jesus Christ has rescued you, you are different. In fact, we're weird. 
We're strangers. We're aliens. And when we don't live like it, it means that we've missed these first two. That means that the first two commandments are not a part of our life. The first two commandments here are really descriptions for us about what it means to live for the Lord completely. And here's it: what it means to worship the right God in the right way. It means thoughtfully living for His kingdom. It means engaging your mind with what God is teaching you. It means enveloping your life in God's truth. It means, secondly, passionately living for His kingdom. It means being emotionally invested. It means putting yourself out on the line. It means willing to fail if it's failing for the Lord and doing the kingdom work. It means doing whatever God may call you to do in order to live for Him completely. And here's the third thing. It means transformed living. And what He says to the people here in Exodus chapter 20, that He says to us as well as this, you're are to be in a relationship with me that is not to be shared. It is exclusive because I can demand it. Here's the thing that I love about this passage there in the middle. There's a word that most people try to shy away from, and it's the word jealous. Now, most of us think of jealousy as a bad thing, but let me tell you, there are times when jealousy is good. If another man is trying to steal your wife, Jealousy is good. If another woman is trying to steal your husband, jealousy is good. And what God says is this, I am jealous because I have every right to be jealous. No other God exists, first of all, and no other God has taken you and redeemed you. And because of that, it is right and it is good for me to be jealous for you. Now think about this for a minute. The God of the universe, who created all that we know, is jealously in love with you and wants an exclusive relationship with you. The question is, will you put your life on the line? Will you serve Him completely?